Right now, many churches are planning their budgets for the next fiscal year. You can promote your confessional Lutheran church and support the worldwide outreach of issues, etc. by becoming a congregational sponsor. When your church pledges $1,000, we'll publicize your congregation on the podcast, at our website, and in the Issues Etc. journal. Learn more on the support donate page at issuesetc.org. Don't miss your congregation's budget deadline. Become an Issues Etc. congregational sponsor. Who was the Old Testament figure, Melchizedek? Could he have been the pre-incarnate Christ? Why do some believers in the book of Acts, in particular Acts chapter 8, receive the Holy Spirit without the water of baptism? And is it right for a woman to lead an adult Bible study on Sunday morning? Does that violate the command that women should be silent in church? Welcome back to Issues Etc. It's time to respond to your unanswered Bible questions. Joining us to do so, Pastor Brian Ketchelmeyer. He is pastor of Mount Calvary Lutheran Church in San Antonio, Texas, and author of the book, Reading Isaiah with Luther. Pastor Ketchelmeyer, welcome back. It's great to be here, Todd. And Pastor Brian Wolfmiller, who's pastor of St. Paul and Jesus Death Lutheran Churches in Austin, Texas. Brian, welcome. Thank you, Todd. Pastor Wolfmiller, this comes from Drew in Michigan. The distinction between faith and belief has always been a little confusing to me. I know that faith is a gift given us in our baptism and strengthened through the preached word and sacraments, Luther mentions in the small catechism that we cannot believe in Christ apart from the work of the Holy Spirit in us. From our Lutheran understanding, I know that both are works of God in us and are passively received. But could you possibly give me a better comparison of the two terms? What are the differences? It's a good question because this is probably more of an English language question than a, a theology question because our English language is a conglomeration of all these different languages. And so a lot of times we'll have different words that really refer to the same thing. They just sound very different. So whenever you're seeing that word faith or belief in the Bible, there's one Greek word that's underneath it, pistoio, which means to believe or the thing that is believed or the thing that is believable. So faith or belief or to have faith in, it's given a different English interpretation sort of based on the context. But this, the idea is the same. And that is that there's something that's promised. This is the main thing for faith or belief to remember, that there's something that is promised and someone that's giving a promise. And faith or belief is the thing that's promised that we believe or that we trust in. So every time the Bible talks about faith, it's either talking about the promise that the Lord has given to us to believe or our own believing in that particular promise. So we can really lump those two things up together. Drew does really well to notice our Lutheran emphasis on the fact that faith itself is a gift. When we are conceived and born, we're born sinful and unbelieving. That's part of the nature of the sinful flesh is that it does not believe and that it cannot believe. So that our faith and trust in the promises of God is created by the Holy Spirit through the very promises that God gives for us to believe. So the promises of God are impossible to believe apart from the work of the Holy Spirit, but the Holy Spirit comes with those promises and gives us faith to receive those promises. Faith is that divine work in us, which trusts the word of God and trusts God who gives such bold and beautiful promises. Nathan asks a question about Proverbs, Pastor Ketchelmeyer. What does the writer mean in Proverbs 20, 25 on all levels of interpretation? And 
how are we to rightly applicably teach this verse, it is a snare to say rashly, it is holy, and to reflect only after making vows? Well, I, I think that one of the things we have here is this understanding of levels of interpretation. I mean, wh- which levels of interpretation are we talking about, uh, Todd? Uh, are we talking about like in the early church when you had the distinction between the Antiochene, who had more of a literal historical interpretation, in contradistinction to the Alexandrians, who had more of an allegorical or spiritual? Now, of course, with the Alexandrians, with the allegorical or spiritual, they were looking really for a Christological understanding, whereas the Antiochenes were kind of more just looking for the historical setting and what did it mean for the Jews in those days. Or, or of course, later on, by the time you get to the Middle Ages, you have these four different levels of interpretation. And so you're trying to find what's the literal historical, what's the allegorical spiritual, what's the tropological or the moral interpretation, or what's the anagogical eschatological interpretation, these four different levels. And and I, I don't think that we need to try to pigeonhole things and trying to find these different levels in particular. How can we make it fit in to this level? How can we make it fit into that level? But I, I think really you're taking these words of Proverbs as the words of wisdom. The God himself is wisdom. Jesus, of course, is incarnate wisdom. And the Holy Spirit is the one who is the spirit of wisdom, who, who gives us this wisdom with the word of God. And, and really, when you're, you're looking at this, this passage here, that's just teaching us all these tidbits of wisdom from God's word, you're looking at the understanding here of not taking a vow hastily. So you're being warned that you shouldn't just quickly call something holy and just think that, well, it's holy because I think this is what God wants and therefore I'm going to do it. So you don't want to fall into the snare of just rashly saying it is holy. And then you take this vow, but then later on you're kind of stuck with this. So you've got a problem there. And in in the New Testament, when we, we teach on this, like for instance, with James in his epistle, which is kind of using this wisdom literature and trying to help us to understand the wisdom of God in contradistinction to the the wisdom of the world, James is telling us in chapter 5 of his epistle that, above all, my brother, do not swear. I mean, so that's that idea of taking an oath or taking a vow. Do not swear either by heaven or by earth or by any other oath, but let your yes be yes and your no be no, so that you may not fall under condemnation. So I I think that really what you have here with James is trying to help us understand how we would utilize the wisdom of God in our life now, walking in this world that's in enmity with God. And the world's always trying to give us its own wisdom, which is not really wisdom in God's sight at all. But understanding that we don't want to say, I'm going to do this. I mean, you might say something like, God willing. We, We even have that understanding of God willing that this will happen or or I will do this. But really, the the whole point of wisdom is here, just let your yes be yes. Don't say, I swear to God, I'm going to do this and it's going to happen. And it might not be of God's will. It might not be of God's intent. And then later on, you're going to find yourself in an awkward situation because you've taken this vow to everybody that you're going to do it. Which, of course, when James is teaching this wisdom of God, we know incarnate wisdom, Jesus himself basically says the same thing. I I mean, in Matthew chapter 5, when Jesus is talking to those who are going to swear falsely. You know, you've heard it said, you shall not swear falsely, but you shall perform to the Lord uh, what you have sworn. But I say to you, because he's incarnate wisdom, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, 
So you're not taking this oath by heaven, the holiness of heaven itself, for it is the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is the footstool of God, or even by Jerusalem, where the temple of God is, where the promised presence of God is at the temple itself. For it is the city of the great king. All these promises fulfilled in Jesus as the son of David. But instead, Jesus says, do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Let what you say be simple, yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. So it's that same idea that don't quickly jump to the conclusion that you think something is holy because it's right in your sight and then make some kind of a vow or swear an oath and say, this is what I know God wants me to do, because later on you might find out that that's not actually what God wanted you to do. I mean, in Luther's day, of course, you're dealing with uh, all the monastic vows. You know, you're taking this monastic vow because you think that you're entering into a holy order. But later on, as Luther himself finds out, what is holy is what God himself makes holy with his word. So when you take these vows, you just, you got to be careful here. Just don't be hasty. Uh, Don't just jump to conclusions without God's word. Shirley has a question. On the last day, when Jesus comes, will our soul be reunited with our bodies, and after the judgment, will we receive our glorified bodies and be with the triumph God forever? Brian Wolfmiller, what would you say to that? I think the answer is yes. And I think Shirley's asking, do we get our bodies back before the judgment and then the glory of the body back after the judgment? And that is a tricky question. What we know is this, that on the last day, Jesus will return and all the dead will be raised. And those who trust in Christ, this is perhaps the best verse for this, is the words from Jesus in John chapter 5, where he talks about the resurrection to life and the resurrection to death. And so there'll be, all people will be raised. Some will be raised to a resurrection. Well, that's the language, resurrection of life, John 529, those who have done evil to the resurrection of condemnation. So all people receive their body back. The believers' bodies are glorified and are brought into eternal life with Christ. The unbelievers' bodies are somehow reprieved from the corruption of sin to be able to die forever, to have an eternal condemnation. So what kind of glory does the resurrected body of the condemned have is probably a mystery that we want, don't want to think about too much, but it's able to sustain the horrors of God's wrath in an eternal way. So I don't think it's necessarily helpful to separate these two to be resurrected and to be glorified. For the Christian, at least, we know that when we are raised, that's when we are raised glorious and incorruptible as St. Paul describes it in 1 Corinthians 15, which would probably be the best place to consider that. That's the resurrection of eternal life, and it all comes together as one gift. We're responding to your unanswered Bible questions. Pastor Brian Ketchelmeyer and Pastor Brian Wolfmiller are our guests. We'll take a pair of questions from Dana and John on women teaching in the church next. This week on The Word of the Lord Endures Forever, as we move farther into St. Luke, we cover the Benedictus Part 2, Nativity of Jesus, Shepherds and Angels, Visit of the Shepherds, Circumcision and Presentation. 
Join me, Pastor Will Whedon, for The Word of the Lord Endures Forever, your daily 15-minute verse-by-verse Bible study on demand. Listen at thewordendures.org or your favorite podcast provider. What is eternal life? How do you understand it? How do you imagine it? We're full of all sorts of ideas of what eternal life might be like. And yet, the scriptures are clear. Eternal life centers on Christ and him crucified for the sins of the world. The November issue of the Lutheran Witness explains some of these misconceptions about eternal life and what the scriptures say. So to learn more, pick up your copy of the November issue of the Lutheran Witness. Visit witness.lcms.org to learn more. The Lutheran Witness, teaching you to interpret the world from a Lutheran perspective. Many educational institutions are governed by the whims of culture and are increasingly hostile to the Word of God. In contrast, Faith Lutheran School in Plano, Texas, provides classical Lutheran education rooted in God's Word for students preschool through grade 12. Simply put, we equip students to stand firm in the faith through solid education focused on wisdom and virtue. We offer in-person instruction as well as live online classes for remote learning. To learn more, visit flsplano.org, flsplano.org. Are you on the road to paradise in the southern Puget Sound area of western Washington, but looking for a traditional liturgical Lutheran congregation in classical Lutheran elementary school? Parkland Lutheran Church and School in Tacoma, a member of the Evangelical Lutheran Synod, is the place to find our Savior's rest on Sunday mornings and Monday evenings. Visit our website at parklandlutheran.org for service times and downloadable sermons. Preaching, teaching, and distributing Christ and Him crucified every week. Grace, faith, scripture, and Christ alone. You're listening to Issues Etc. The church's music from the second century. Shepherd of tender youth, guiding in love The sixth century. The 12th century. The 16th century. The 21st century. The best of the church's music from the past 2,000 years. LutheranPublicRadio.org Welcome back. I'm Todd Wilkin. This is Issues Etc. We're responding to your unanswered Bible questions. Pastor Brian Ketchumeyer and Pastor Brian Wolfmiller are our guests. Pastor Ketchumar, a pair of related questions from Dana and John. Dana says, is it all right for a woman to lead an adult Bible study on Sunday morning, or does that violate the command that women should be silent in church? Then John says, should a called female teacher lead chapel in Lutheran grade school? Should a called female teacher lead chapel in a Lutheran high school? What are your thoughts there? Well, I think that we've found ourselves in this place in history where we are very confused with gender, obviously, male and female. We're very confused also about role of man, role of woman. So this is a situation that we're in, and a lot of these questions are going to come up where we're trying to rethink, are we on the right track? What we've done in the past, was that correct? 
just because we did it in the past. I mean, we're talking about Bible studies in general. I mean, understand historically in the church, you go back 500 years plus to the time of the Reformation, this concept of Bible studies wasn't there. I mean, what you had is you had the public preacher, the public teacher. You, you had Luther who was in this office uh, of preaching, the preaching office, and he's going in and he's preaching a sermon, let's say like two hours long. I mean, so that's in the mass itself. That's in the divine service where he's preaching the sermon. So you didn't have this concept of we have service first and then Bible class later. You had the teacher, the one who's teaching the Word of God in that pulpit, teaching that Word of God, bringing it to the people. And we're in a setting now where we understand it's common practice to have a Bible study. So this is where we're trying to figure out what does it mean to even have a Bible study itself. We know that the pastor is the one who has the authority to be the preacher and the teacher. I mean, we say this in the Augsburg Confession, where we say the office of ministry to obtain this faith, the faith that justifies. God has instituted the office of the ministry that has provided the gospel and the sacraments. And it's through these, it's through means he gives the Holy Spirit to work faith when and where he pleases. Or uh, later on, even in uh, Article 14, we say it is taught among us that nobody should publicly teach or preach or administer the sacraments in the church without a right call, R-I-T-E, that uh, regular call, that, that understanding of a man who's been placed into this office, into this uh, preaching office where you proclaim Christ crucified. And, and so when you have these two questions asking this, well, is it right for this to happen? Well, in a Bible study group, I mean, we have with CPH, Concordia Publishing House, of course, we put forth resources of Bible studies. And the idea here is it's put together by a pastor who's in this office and he's going to prepare something for resources so that an individual could then use this in some type of a, an individual study. But here's the issue is the pastors are trained in our Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod, at the seminaries in our Synod to look at the Word of God in the original languages, in Hebrew and Greek. This is always going to be the case where you're going to get yourself into trouble when you are just taking a Bible, looking at English, and you're trying to say, well, what does this English word mean? And, and how do I prefer a translation because I like this English word better? So there's that uniqueness in training the pastor to work with the original language, a Hebrew, a Greek, Aramaic, and you're looking at these languages so you can bring out the richness of God's word. And so you, you have that understanding First of all, that it's the pastor's calling to do this. He's the one who has the authority to do this. And you get confusion when in these settings, when you have a person who's not in this office, but most precisely, even more confusing, when you have a woman doing something that ought to be done by the pastor, it brings a lot of confusion, especially when there are those denominations who are bringing this innovation of women's ordination into this whole conversation. And so now you, you see a woman doing something that is rightly given to a man to do. I mean, in the scripture, it makes it clear what's unique to a man is the ability to be placed into this preaching office, but not all men are in this preaching office. What's unique to a woman is this vocation of mother, but of course, not all women are placed in that vocation of being a mother. So in the scripture, when we're making this distinction between male and female, when we're understanding how God has made us to complement each other in these ways, we see the gender of a male and the man himself being the one who has this unique ability to be placed into this office of preaching, the head and the body. This is Adam and Eve was deceived. And that's this whole fall into sin is, is when uh, the devil had deceived Eve. But then what's unique to Eve and women, of course, you get this in 1 Timothy chapter 2, is that the, the woman is able to, to bear children. 
And so that's something very unique to women. So I, I think these are things that we need to kind of rethink and we need to look at and, and try to understand what are we trying to do? When you have a, a chapel service at, let's say, a Lutheran high school or a Lutheran parochial school, what is right and in good order is the pastor would be the one preaching and proclaiming if this is some type of a divine service, if this is that liturgical life where the people of God are gathered around word and sacrament, it does bring a confusion, a level of confusion when you do see a woman who is not in that preaching office, and of course in the whole confusion of the world where there are so-called ordained women who are taking upon that office upon themselves because they feel this inner calling instead of actually receiving that calling uh, rightly through uh, the congregation. What about you, Pastor Wolfmiller? Well, I, I think it's nice for us to remember that women are called by God to teach. So just to look at Titus chapter 2, where Paul is given instructions for the older women, he says, verse 3, likewise, the women be, older women be reverent in behavior, not slanderers, not given to much wine, teachers of good things. It's one word in the Greek. It's only used there, kalodidaskalus, which means teachers of the good or teachers of the beautiful or teachers of the noble things. So that all women and especially older Christian women are called to be teachers. And, and that's helpful because then when we read the prohibitions in 1 Corinthians 14, 34, 1 Timothy 2, 11 and 12, we're recognizing that, that the prohibitions that are given there are about the public teaching of the office. So that every Christian woman should think of herself not only as a theologian and a learner of God's word, but also one who's going to be a teacher of God's word. So Paul goes on back to Titus 2, 4, that they admonish the young women to love their husbands, to love their children, to be discreet, chaste, homemakers, despotes. that's another great word there, good, obedient to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be blasphemed. So it's important for the Christian women to recognize, no, it's not that God has forbidden you from teaching. He's, in fact, commanded you to teach. But he says that your office of teaching, especially the older women, is for the younger women, and to teach them these things that are particularly helpful for being good and godly women. That's where this is to be exercised. This, this teaching office is to show up. So these questions about Bible study, about chapel in high school, I think these are all good sort of casuistry questions to test, are we following the ways of God's word or are we following the ways of the world? But this is the, always wants to push us back to the rightly ordered gifts that God has put in the scriptures. And I'd say in general and in most circumstances, if things are operating in a normal way, that you would not have a woman teaching an adult Bible class or in high school chapel, that that would be out of order with what God has put forth in the scriptures. A question from Elwin for you, Pastor Ketchelmeyer. The five major sacrifices in Leviticus 1 through 5 are for unintended sin. Does the law hold out any hope for those guilty of intentional sin? I'm looking at David, Bathsheba, Uriah, Nathan, and then seeing the resolution in Psalm 51, but I'm eager for a correction. 
Yeah, this is uh, where we, we want to stop and pause and look at the Old Testament itself, the, the whole understanding of this Mosaic law, what we have in that covenant at Mount Sinai in blood. And under Mosaic law, of course, you have the whole Levitical sacrificial system that is put into place. So in the book of Leviticus, you kind of have this agenda book, kind of this whole understanding of how these things will play out in this life, in the liturgical life of the people of God. And yes, when you go through Leviticus chapters uh, 1 through 5, you're looking at what is called an unintentional sin. Because, I mean, you have the clear word of God, this is what you are to do, this is what you're not to do. But if you do it, you had to uh, intentionally do it, right? But if you, you did it in, out of an ignorance or a negligence, this is in that qualification that we would say is an unintentional sin. And when we talk about this unintentional sin, understand that in the Old Testament, the whole sacrificial system itself is not the end. It is a partial atonement, if you will. So under the Old Testament, there was no sin offering for intentional sin under that whole sacrificial system. It's a partial atonement. And it's always pointing to something more that you need something more than just the blood of bulls and goats. You need something more that actually would be a total atonement, the complete atonement for all sin, both unintentional and intentional. If the sacrificial system of the Old Testament was all we needed, there would be no promise of one who is greater to come, one who is greater than Aaron the high priest, one who is greater than Moses the prophet, one who becomes sacrifice himself for the sins of the world. So this is always pointing for Jesus, the need for Jesus to do what the law could not do. And so under the Old Testament liturgical ritual ceremonies that we had under Mosaic law, this is a partial cleansing in the Old Testament, but it's pointing towards a full atonement, a full accomplishment that we have in Jesus. And this is what the whole epistle to the Hebrews is really arguing the case for, that the whole Levitical system itself under Aaron and his sons as the high priest, you needed a different order you needed the order of Melchizedek. So you, you have here in Hebrews arguing that Jesus, even though he's from the tribe of Judah, that he is that priest that we need. And that temporary priesthood that we had under Aaron comes to an end. And so like in Hebrews chapter 10, you're explaining that it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin, because you have to keep repeating this over and over and over again. And it never comes to an end. These priests just stand there daily, day after day, offering up these sacrifices over and over, because it can never fully take away sin. But it's Jesus who comes, Christ himself, who is offered as the single sacrifice for sins. And then he sits down at the right hand of the Father. And so he is the one we were waiting for. He's the one who comes to completely atone for all sin. And so that's why in Hebrews chapter 10, it says, where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer any offering for sin. So Jesus is that the blood, the eternal blood that we have that gives to us this eternal forgiveness before the Father. You see that uh, John talks about this in his epistle, the whole understanding that we have this advocate with the Father. I mean, so in John's epistle, he begins by saying, but if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. So notice that the blood of Jesus cleanses us from all sin, the totality of sin. 
either uh, intended sin or unintended sin. It covers all. Or later on in verse 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness, either intended or unintended. Or later on in 1 John chapter 2, where, where John is teaching us, I'm writing these things so that you may not sin. But then he goes on to say, however, if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. So that Jesus himself is the one who covers all sins. He's the one who atones for all sins. He's the one that takes away all sins including those that were unintentional and those that were intentional. And so when you look at these ceremonial sacrificial systems in the Old Testament under Mosaic law, it's always pointing toward a need for something greater. Yes, you have Moses acts as a mediator, but you need a greater mediator between God and man, and that's Christ himself. And so now we're in the situation where we understand very clearly with Jesus and the forgiveness of sins have been won for us, and faith itself is a gift where we receive the benefits of this promise. And so what's that unforgivable sin? It's that sin of unbelief. It's that rejecting this. It's the resisting of the Holy Spirit. That's that situation where it's the sin of unbelief. So it's not this distinction between an intentional sin or an unintentional sin. It's being in that state of, of rejecting the promise of Jesus and not trusting him for salvation and his person and his work alone. Your link to issues, etc. I'm Todd Wilkin. Pastors Brian Ketchelmeyer and Brian Wolfmiller are responding to your unanswered Bible questions. Veterans Day is coming up this Friday, November the 11th. LCMS Ministry to the Armed Forces supports all Lutheran Church Missouri Senate chaplains who serve on active duty in the reserves, the National Guard, Civil Air Patrol, and Coast Guard Auxiliary. For more information on their work, visit lcms.org slash armed forces. Serving those who serve, LCMS Ministry to the Armed Forces, lcms.org slash armed forces. We will take up a question about the aforementioned Melchizedek right after this. Thanks to our beloved on-demand listeners, Issues Etc. consistently ranks among the top podcasts in religion and spirituality. You can help us climb the charts by subscribing, rating, and reviewing Issues Etc. Type Issues Etc. in your podcast provider, hit the subscription button, and leave us a five-star review. This will make it easier for podcast listeners to find Issues Etc. Help us cast Christ's net on the internet. Subscribe, rate, and review Issues Etc. today. Job saw the city as a wasteland, as if devoid of God, witnessing injustice to the poor by the corrupt, lawlessness of criminals, trafficking of children, blatant immorality, thinking God could not see wicked deeds done in the dark of night. Yet God never abandoned Job, nor his city, groaning for mercy. God is working through the living Redeemer, hands etched with salvation, pointing to the resurrection to come. Join us at lcms.org slash citymission to seek peace and shine the light in the city. Your daily Lutheran Bible class. You're listening to Issues Etc. If you continue in my word, you are truly my disciples. And you will know the truth, and the truth will make you free. 
Dr. Russell Dawn, president of Concordia University, Chicago. Indeed, the quest for truth is at the core of a university's purpose. The liberal arts, illuminated by the revealed truths of Scripture, are powerful for equipping students for a life of self-governance. A disciple is one who follows the Master. So what does it mean to follow Jesus? He said that it means to take up one's cross. The cross is thus the symbol of dying for others, of dying to self for the sake of serving others. And a life of service is a life well lived. Truth, freedom, vocation. Concordia University, Chicago. cuchicago.edu. Welcome back. Pastor Brian Ketchelmeyer and Brian Wolf Miller are answering your unanswered Bible questions. I'm Todd Wilkin. This is Issues, etc. Pastor Wolf Miller, a question from Nate regarding Melchizedek mentioned just a few moments ago. He says, do we believe that Melchizedek is the Son of God appearing in the Old Testament? If so, is that a theophany or Christophany? If not, how can Melchizedek have no beginning of days resembling the Son of God according to Hebrews chapter 7? It's a good question. I might work backwards into the question a little bit. This difference between a theophany and a Christophany, that, that's simply theological vocab for an appearance of God, theophany, or an appearance of the second person of the Holy Trinity, a Christophany, appearance of the Son of God. And we believe that most of the time when God appears in the Old Testament, those theophanies are Christophanies. Jesus himself says in John chapter 1 that no one at any time has seen God, but the only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father has made him known. So whenever God is seen or heard in the Old Testament, our first thought is, oh, there's Jesus walking in the garden with Adam and Eve. There's Jesus appearing to Joshua as he's preparing to go into the land. There's Jesus in the burning bush talking with Moses, which is great. Uh, it's really helpful to think of the Old Testament in that way. When it comes to Melchizedek, though, I think the key text for understanding this is Psalm 110. And Psalm 110, this great Psalm of David, one of the most quoted in the New Testament, is really answering an ancient riddle, which is, how can the Messiah be both king from the tribe of Judah and David and also priest from the tribe of Levi? You, you can't be one and the other. So, so how was the Messiah going to be able to combine these two offices, which the Lord had separated? You got the kings over there from Judah. You got the priests over there from Levi. How can you be both? And David is given by the Holy Spirit the solution to that riddle. And we have it in Psalm 110. You are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. So that the priesthood of the Messiah is not a Levitical priesthood or an Aaronic priesthood, but rather a Melchizedekian priesthood. And so when the book of Hebrews is leaning into that role of Jesus, the high priest, the one who offers himself as the completely atoning sacrifice and who now stands before the throne of God presenting the blood, which is that which washes away the sin of the world, the blood of the lamb who takes away the sin of the world. It says that this is the one who came according to the order of Melchizedek. And it plays on the fact that in the Genesis narrative, Melchizedek just kind of shows up. He's there in Salem, probably pre-Jerusalem, 
and Abraham recognizes his authority and his greatness. The old teachers in the church, and this would include Luther, understood Melchizedek to be Shem and to have a very prevalent role in the early histories, that he was basically the the king and high priest at the time who was teaching and preaching the gospel. In fact, Luther says that when Rebecca hears the prophecy, the older will serve the younger, that it was Shem or Melchizedek who made that prophecy. And so this is, he didn't make that up either. He's, he's pulling in this ancient wisdom from the church. But the point of Hebrews is that it doesn't tell us where Melchizedek came from. It doesn't tell us where he's going. And in that way, it reminds us of Jesus. Jesus didn't inherit the priesthood, and he doesn't give the priesthood to anyone else. It's not like the Aaronic priesthood, which was handed down from Aaron to his children, to his grandchildren, and so forth and so on. No, that he, he has the priesthood, and he has it forever, so that he is perpetually our high priest, and beautifully, Hebrews 7, he always lives to intercede for us. So he is still doing his high priestly work of interceding for sinners, uh, bringing his blood to bear. And that's a beautiful comfort for us. What are your thoughts on Melchizedek, Pastor Ketchumar? We want to be very clear here that the, the scripture is not saying that Melchizedek is Jesus. I mean, in fact, in Hebrews, it says the exact opposite. I mean, it makes it very clear that it's the order of Melchizedek that we're talking about. That's the key here. So when we're, we're talking in Hebrews chapter 7 about he has no father, he has no mother, he has no genealogy, I can understand people are quick to just go, oh, that's just like Jesus. But I mean, when you think about this, th- with Jesus, there is a genealogy. This is the whole point. There's a genealogy from the tribe of Judah in the house of David. And you get in Luke's gospel and Matthew's gospel. I mean, you're trying to trace this through to the genealogy in that house of David with Joseph, the stepfather, of course, not being his biological father, but Mary, the virgin, being the biological mother. I mean, so you do have this, this genealogy with Jesus. But the key here is that in the text of Scripture, all of a sudden, as you're reading, he just pops up out of nowhere. So here you have Abraham, and out of nowhere, you have this figure that we are labeling or titling, I should say, Melchizedek, that he is the king, okay? he He's the king of righteousness. He's the king of Salem, the king of peace. And so he's the one who's going to come and he just shows up and then he just exits stage left and he never comes out again. So there is no genealogy there, like uh, Pastor Wolfmiller was saying, that that's the key. So we, we have Jesus who has a genealogy that's tied to the tribe of Judah, But that's the king. That's where the king is supposed to come from. But the tribe of Levi is where the priest is going to come from. So that's the key here. You talk about he is a priest forever. I mean, with Melchizedek, this understanding of forever that we have as we just immediately grab along with the, the grapple onto, I should say, this word of eternity. But, but understand it properly that it's a perpetuity. It's perpetually, continuously. So that when you have Melchizedek show up, we don't have anybody who is the successor of Melchizedek in the Old Testament. So as the text goes, as the narrative flows, he's just perpetually the one priest that we know of, Melchizedek. But as Pastor Wolf Miller said in Psalm 110, we're looking for the Messiah who is under the order of Melchizedek, a different priesthood, a priesthood that is prior to Mosaic law. As we were just saying earlier, these the ritual law, the Levitical sacrifices were all pointing toward the need 
for atonement, the shedding of blood, because without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. But those Levitical sacrifices were temporary. The order of Aaron and his sons as these priests this is temporary, that we're waiting for the one to come who is greater than Aaron and who is greater than Melchizedek. A question from Anonymous, James 5.15, the prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. The Anonymous listener says, I sat at the hospice bedside of my friend praying the Kyrie and the Apostles' Creed, the Lord's Prayer, begging God to be merciful. I reminded my friend of her childhood baptism She could not profess her faith to me, and I prayed that in her heart she might profess it to God. Were my prayers enough? Pastor Wolf Miller. What a blessed gift to give to your friend to be there as she's dying and to press into her ears and into her heart God's word. Reading maybe a little bit into the question, it's not stated explicitly, but it sounds to me like this person that was being ministered to was not regular in church, maybe had walked away from uh, the gifts of God, especially if you're reminding a gift of baptism, like there hasn't been much hearing and rejoicing in the Lord's word since. And and I think if I'm hearing the question right, it's asking, was that enough to bring them back and to restore their faith? It's important to remember when we're speaking of the efficacy of prayer, we're not speaking of prayer itself, but rather of the power of God. So the efficacy or the power of prayer is 100% tied to the power of God. It's not like if we say the right things or if we pray in the right way, then change will be affected. No, it has nothing to do with us as well. In fact, the very act of prayer is an admission that we don't have the strength to accomplish what we're hoping to accomplish and that we need the Lord to do the thing that needs to be done. So the power of prayer is the power of God. And the answer is, absolutely, God is enough to press his word into the ears and hearts of those who have rejected them his whole life and to redeem them. Now, What we're looking for here, I think what the question is looking for, is some sort of certainty to say, if I have ministered in this way, can I rely on this promise and know that I'll see this person that I ministered to in heaven, we have to confess that the Holy Spirit works when and where it pleases him, and that it's his work, not ours. And so while we don't want to have an absolute certainty, that's just what faith does. It says, Lord, look, you promised that your word would not return void. Lord, you claimed this person in their baptism. Lord, you've promised to hear and answer our prayers. And so all my hope and all my trust is in your promises. I don't think that means we say, yes, the person is in heaven, but certainly we don't say that they couldn't have made it there at all because the Lord does work through these things. Again, when it where it pleases him, but he does work through these things. And it's never forbidden for the Christian to hope. Even as we are praying for those that we love who seemingly have left the faith and now it's time for them to die and face the judgment day, It's never a sin to hope that those words spoken on the deathbed didn't bear the fruit of faith and the glorious promise of eternal life. Pastor Brian Wolfmiller, author of Has American Christianity Failed? And Pastor Brian Ketchelmeyer, author of Reading Isaiah with Luther. We'll be back tomorrow to respond to questions about John the Baptist's pre-birth faith. 
speaking in tongues, and receiving the Holy Spirit apart from water baptism. I'm Todd Wilkin. Thanks for listening. Listen weekday afternoons to Pastor Todd Wilkin and guests on Issues Etc. Issues Etc. is a listener-supported program. Your financial support is vital for the continuation and expansion of this worldwide outreach. Our mailing address, Issues Etc., P.O. Box 83, Collinsville, Illinois, 62234. Box 83, Collinsville, Illinois, 62234. You can also donate at our website, issuesetc.org. Issues Etc., is a production of LPR, Lutheran Public Radio. Repentance and forgiveness, sin and grace, law and gospel, more than cliches, real preaching for real people in need of hearing the real Christ. Christ for you in the divine service at St. Paul Lutheran Church of Hamill, Illinois, where we gather every Saturday night at 6 and on the Lord's Day, Sunday mornings at 745 and 10. Look for the Church of the Neon Cross on I-55 between exits 30 and 33. Find us on the web, stpaullutheranchurchhamill.org. St. Paul Lutheran Church of Hamill, where there is the forgiveness of sins, life, and salvation for the people of God. You can help save lives in Southern Illinois by participating in 40 Days for Life, September 28th through November 6th. Vigils will be held outside abortion facilities at Granite City, Carbondale, and Fairview Heights, Illinois. For information on Granite City, visit 40daysgc.com. To learn more about Carbondale and Fairview Heights, go to coalitionforlife.com. You can protect mothers and children by joining the worldwide effort of 40 Days for Life, September 28th through November 6th. Christological. My friends, Jesus comes only for sinners. Historical. I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by... Sacramental. Take and eat. This is the true body of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, given unto death for your sins. To find a Christological, historical, and sacramental church near you, go to issuesetc.org and click Find a Church. Did you know that we send out an email each week that details upcoming show topics? It's available for you to include in your weekly church bulletin. Just click the Issues Etc. Journal logo at our homepage, issuesetc.org, and sign up to receive the church bulletin blurb. It's an easy way to invite your fellow parishioners to listen to Issues Etc. Issuesetc.org. Look for the Issues Etc. Journal logo and register to receive a weekly bulletin paragraph from Issues Etc. College Preparation Station in Maryville, Illinois, offers ACT, SAT, and PSAT test prep, scholarship application classes, college and career counseling, and more. Hi, this is Lori Konsky, president of College Preparation Station. We have helped our students obtain more than $7 million in tuition scholarships in 12 years. Find out more at cpsprep.com. Let us help you create a vision and find your future. The College Preparation Station in Maryville, Illinois, 
cpsprep.com.